I'm Jeff Cohen. Heather Dean has made a career out of interviewing some of the biggest names in movies, TV, Broadway, and music. Her interview list is a who's who of A-list celebrities. But as she hobnobbed with so many household names, she also began a spiritual exploration that ultimately led to Orthodox Judaism. Heather is here today to share her journey from Hollywood to the Holy Land. Heather, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos. Hey there, Jeff. Thank you for inviting me. By the way, when we came up with this idea of Hollywood to Holy Land, it fits perfectly with Saturday to Shabbos. I think you could have a sister podcast. All right. Okay. So that's <laughs> no pressure. That's, that's your phrasing. Very good. Thank you. <laughs> so obviously, just from the introduction, there are a million things we could talk about from your time in Hollywood. But before we get to that and your journey to Orthodox Judaism, let's just set the context of where your journey begins. And even before we talk about you, just maybe help us understand like your parents' background, where they're from and religiously, and before you came into the picture. Sure. Okay, so with both of my parents, interestingly enough, your your name is Jeff Cohen. My parents, both sides, they're from Kohanic families. Nice. So it just happens to be that way. Both of their families were immigrants to the United States during the Industrial Revolution. So that means that fortunately for us, they were not in Europe during that tumultuous time of the rise of the Third Reich. They were already in America, and my parents met in Cleveland, Ohio. My father was a professor at Case Western University. He ran um, the Department of Operations Research in the School of Management. He was the chairman of that department. And they were introduced by my mother's cousin, who was also at Case Western, They were the loves of each other's lives. May they rest in peace. So in both of their cases, their own parents were very well-versed in Yiddish, and they knew all about Judaism, but I would say that their own upbringings were traditional. They just made a decision not to be observant, as did many Jews that lived through the Industrial Revolution, where working on Shabbat meant they didn't have a job Monday, you know, whatever it was. I'm not altogether sure why they left their Jewish observance of their own families, but that sort of continued on with my own parents. So my own parents were very proud Jews and lovers of Zion, very Zionist, visited Israel kind of frequently. In fact, my father was a visiting professor at Technion University in Haifa, in their school of management. And uh, yeah, so I grew up knowing very full well their love of Israel. They were buyers of Israel bonds. And in fact, my father was president for a year or two of the ZOA in the Cleveland chapter of the Zionist Organization of America. So this was uh, definitely something that we knew very strongly. Our parents chose to bring us up, my brothers and me, in Shaker Heights, Ohio, because of the excellent school system there. I knew that from K through 12, it was a really fantastic public school system. So what they did was, after school, enroll us for many years in Hebrew school, which was affiliated with um, the conservative temple where we were members. So I was bused several afternoons, as were my brothers, to a different school in suburban Cleveland to attend lessons in Hebrew school. So many of my friends went to Hebrew school during those early years through the bar bat mitzvah age, and they have very different perspectives on how much they enjoyed it versus feeling like they were being dragged to it. Do you remember how you felt in those years about going to Hebrew school? 
Oh, I definitely did not enjoy it. I did not enjoy it. Looking back, I definitely benefited from having learned how to read Hebrew and to write Hebrew and to speak Hebrew, because it's always good to stretch your mind and know another language, especially another alphabet. And I learned a lot about the state of Israel. The thing about Hebrew school is that in our school system anyway, it was not, um, there's really no connection to Hashem, to God. Oddly enough, it, <laughs> it was really about the state of Israel and the language. So I think that if there isn't that connection, like why are we Jewish? What do we believe in? What is our connection to the Creator? It just leaves people wanting. And there is a way for young people to connect with God if they're taught and influenced properly. But we were not. So it was really like just something I had to endure. So I did confront my parents occasionally about this, like, why do we have to go? My mother's answer was always, I didn't have the advantage of knowing everything that you know growing up because we didn't have Hebrew school. And I think it's important for you children to know where you come from, what this tradition is. So that was her answer. You know, the other thing that's missing from the experience as a kid, as I'm listening to your answer, is what happens post-bar or bat mitzvah. And I, I remember in my own experience, that was like the end of the line. There wasn't something natural for me to go to next, even if I had been interested there wasn't like a next phase two to keep the learning going if I had been interested in doing so. Did you have anything you could do after the bat mitzvah age? Yeah, this particular program did have education through like the early part of high school. They used a Catholic term called confirmation. So when you were 15, 16, then you were finished and they would have like some little ceremony and that was called confirmation. So that was the end of that. I never set foot into a synagogue or anything until much, much later, until it was on my terms. But, you know, there is that classic joke of the, the temple that had a problem with rats and uh, nothing was working. And so somebody came up with the idea, well, let's just bar mitzvah them all and they'll never come back. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not sure I should be laughing at that. I mean, you, you got me with the joke, but it's not a good, not a good uh, thing to say about our religion, I guess. That's, well, well, that's the thing about that, that kind of temple. I didn't say Beit Knesset or Shul. There is something a little off, and in my memoir, I'm very outspoken about it, that there is something left wanting, which, uh, which is why Hebrew school just isn't what it used to be as is the conservative movement. It's just not what it used to be. The numbers are dwindling to atrociously low numbers, and it's not sustainable. I wish that there is a way to make it sustainable for people, and that's why I think that if there is a big upswing, as is evidenced in Jewish observances, because there are programs where it is something that is relevant. Right. And so many of the Balshuvas that I interview, it's that connection to Judaism, the rhythm and flow of the year and the week leading up to Shabbos that gives them something to anchor their Judaism on that, as I think back to what I didn't have as a kid, that has a lot to do with why I wasn't feeling that connection. Right. A hundred percent. So continuing the story as we're looking at these early years and teenage years, I mentioned in the introduction what you ended up doing career-wise with celebrities, Hollywood, etc. Did you have an interest in that at an early age also, or did it come later on? I definitely had an interest in it from a very, very early age. And as we've already established, I grew up in suburban Ohio. So in suburban Ohio, 
you know, people don't really dream of one day working in network television or in the movies or in anything to do with the entertainment community, because in suburban Ohio, it's just not there. There's the local affiliates of CBS, ABC and NBC and Fox, but it's not as though a person dreams to work for networks one day. Cleveland's, a, at least when I was growing up, is a nice place to live. So it's not as though, it's not as though people dreamed that big. In my own case, I did by the time I was already in university. But the thing about growing up and my whole fascination with celebrities, I wasn't interested in becoming a performer as a career, but I was always fascinated by famous people. And I was fascinated with people who did great things, anybody who was accomplished. So having grown up on the university campus where my father was a teacher, I always had such high esteem for doctors and dentists and lawyers and people that had advanced degrees on the Hollywood level. Having watched so many movies and television and listening to so much music, I also considered performing artists who got to a national and international level of fame as also people that did great things and accomplished a lot. So the whole idea of what they did, I really, really appreciated performing artists and what they did, still do. And I was always fascinated on the personal side of the life of famous people. What is it like having been unknown, being discovered, and now that you're famous, what's that like? That was often a question that I would ask the A-list and B-list people that I interviewed as a celebrity interviewer, just about their experiences of fame. And so many eye-opening answers would come forth. But as a kid growing up in Ohio, I would just, uh, in addition to watching so much entertainment, I would watch the interview shows and sort of glean whatever I could of their own lives and their own relationships and just read all of the magazines and uh, anything to do with popular culture. I became as much of an expert as one could. <laughs> it's so interesting. I'm thinking about all the shows I watched growing up where you see the celebrity being interviewed and there's always this other person sitting there who's asking the questions. I'm picturing you now, you're watching those two people, you don't want to be the performer. So maybe your eyes are turning to the person asking the question saying, wow, there's room for that person to have a career also. Right, right, right. So when I was in college, everybody loved David Letterman. Like the world stopped at 1130 when Late Show went on. Actually, it wasn't Late Show. Back then it was late night on NBC with David Letterman. The world stopped. So that was definitely also a point of fascination where people that were interviewers. The position that you and I are in, it's different than somebody like David Letterman or Jimmy Kimmel or Jimmy Fallon, who are celebrities interviewing other celebrities. I think that what you and I do is much more fascinating because you're interviewing great people. I'm interviewing great people. And it's, I think it's so much cooler to do it from the person who is the unknown because you get a much different side. It's not the camaraderie of two famous people interviewing each other. So as good as an interviewer as Oprah Winfrey is, she's going to get a different kind of interview when she's interviewing another celebrity or even a, you know, a civilian, as it were. I like what you and I get better. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're right. When we're doing interviews, we're not trying to be part of the entertainment necessarily. We're just trying to get information from the person who's featured on the show. Mm -hmm. Yep. So this interest that you had in this growing up, did that inform where you went to college and what you studied? Were you already in your mind thinking college and my degree is all going to be culminating and hopefully going into this field? 
So that's a great question. I went to Case West Reserve because that's where my father was university professor, as I said, and I was lucky to get a tuition waiver. So that's what <laughs> that's a big uh, deal. That's why Case Western was the only place I applied to. Glad I got in and I had a great time there as an undergrad. But that's, you know, truth be told, that's that's why I was there. But I did, you know, need to pick a major that was something that I was interested in. And the thing about Case Western Reserve is all of the graduate schools are world class, whether it's law, medicine, dentistry, and uh, engineering, many other things, which was just not my interest or specialty. I am not gifted in the STEM sciences, no way. But as far as expression and the English language, so it took a while. It took me to switch majors to major in English. So while I was at an engineering school, okay, so I was an English major. And that is what I think helped me become a good journalist and also informed the work that I did at MTV, my first job after college. So how did you land that job? I'm thinking back to that time period. I would assume anyone who has any interest in this field would have wanted to get something with MTV. So how did you land that coveted role? I know. It's incredible because I'm telling you, there were students from all over North America who applied for internships there. And I was one of them <laughs> in my last class of senior year. I just wanted that to be my, my independent study last class, and that would put me over the top for graduation. So I have to say unequivocally, it's the Yad Hashem. I just owe it to Hashem because I'm telling you, the odds were just stacked against me with so many accomplished college students also vying for an internship at MTV. That's all it is. Uh, when I was an undergrad, so I did have a radio show for two or three years, and I was a programmer, very, very creative activity when you're the one selecting the playlist and talking on air. And I was also interviewing local musicians. And on top of that, I was also uh, in very heavily involved with the College Film Society. So that was the group of students that exhibited films to the campus. And this was the days just on the threshold of VHS tapes where you could actually rent movies. So, um, so back then, the access to movies for college kids was their local film society, their campus film society. So I was involved with it and eventually became the director of the film society. So I was the one programming that. So those were creative activities. And I guess that over at MTV, that impressed the management to bring me in for an interview also. So they brought me in. I took a train from Cleveland to New York and uh, landed the interview. And I knew I would do well. I knew I had the credentials. I didn't think about Yad Hashem because religion was completely off the map for me. I just uh, was quite ambitious. So, and, and I knew with my credentials, I probably would do well. I just needed to speak well during the interview. And uh, yeah, that worked out. I'm glad you just said that because I was going to bring Judaism up to speed at this point in your life. And it sounds like you're saying it was sort of on the back burner as you were ambitiously pursuing your career options. And I know we're going to get back to Judaism later. So let's keep going Jeff, on the Jeff, entertainment you're too, side. you're too kind. It, <laughs> it was off the burner. It was off the stove, out of the kitchen, and out the door. I was completely disinterested in anything to do with religion. That's how bad Hebrew school was for me. It just turned me off so much, having had to go. You know, <laughs> so I, did, I wanted nothing to do with religion, Judaism, nothing. You could be pursuing your career and just living as a secular Jew. And even if you're just having a piece of matzah, opening a Hanukkah gift, that might be as much as many secular Jews are doing. I'm not, I'm not making a blanket statement about everybody. I'm just saying 
someone who sort of stopped at their bar mitzvah, maybe doing very little, it wouldn't even necessarily mean you're putting on the back burner. It's just not a big part of your life. So it's perfectly natural to be going after your career until you find a new entry point into Judaism. So how would you characterize it for you as you see this amazing opportunity at MTV sort of launching the beginning of your career? Okay, so you're saying spiritually at the time? Because I'm telling you, it's really, really off the map. I was already in New York City, and I remember going to an ice cream shop one evening, and there was a Jewish guy also in the shop, and he asked, where did I go? Where did I daven that morning? Where did I go praying? I'm like, what are you talking about? And he said, well, today we just finished Rosh Hashanah. Today's Rosh Hashanah. And I said, really? <laughs> I'm telling you, that's how disassociated I was. I didn't even know it was Rosh Hashanah. I knew what Rosh Hashanah was, of course. Yeah, so my career, you could say, was more of a religion. I did have some spiritual leanings. I did feel at some point in my career, I would say it was in my late 20s, I started to feel like, you know, maybe there is like a, okay, there's a creator of the world. Okay, maybe. Is he really supervising the world because the world's so messed up? I had some doubts, but I think that, you know, when you're a young adult, if you go through certain big life experiences, a person might just reach out even the recesses of their mind, like, what is this all about? What is the purpose? And does this have meaning? So I had some spiritual leanings. I do remember um, before one particular assignment for MTV, I was getting ready in the morning and I saw on local New York, like some public access channel, I saw that there was a woman giving a speech about spirituality. And I just thought, oh, that's pretty interesting (laughs) what she was saying. And just by accident, so to speak, the following Tuesday, there this woman was again on public access of the speech. And it's so more and more, I would like try to time it so I would hear her great speeches. And she wasn't talking about Judaism, but she was talking about something called A Course in Miracles. And I would read the credits, and this was Marianne Williamson. I became a real devotee of what Marianne Williamson was teaching. I picked up a copy of Course in Miracles. When she would come to New York to give public speaking engagements, I would occasionally go to those. I would buy her books, and she had lectures on tape. So I was just so interested in what she was talking about the what it all came down to as far as her philosophy was it all became came down to emotions being either based in fear or based in love so that's pretty harmless and so you know i would study more and more about that and then i learned that she mentioned in one of her speeches that she's jewish and i thought oh wow she's jewish and she keeps talking about the christian savior you know but i didn't care because i really wasn't religious i just thought that's interesting because that's not how I was raised. That was not part of my lexicon in my own mind. So that got me a little bit more into spirituality because she's very, very charismatic and she is an excellent public speaker. I can see why she still to this day has a big fan base. I'm not one of them anymore. The utter falsehood of A Course in Miracles, it became very clear the whole thing was based in such utter falsehood All right. So I had some spiritual ideas bubbling to the surface. And so, okay, A Course in Miracles wasn't it, but I would start investigating, exploring maybe a different kind of philosophy until it became very clear to me, oh my goodness, this one's a house of cards, forget it. And then maybe months later, a different philosophy. 
And I realized it's completely false. Or another philosophy, the leader of that uh, religious philosophy is, is completely corrupt. It's just on and on. And just at some point, I would always become disappointed. I would get my hopes up like, oh, this is the truth, you know, being a truth seeker. This is the truth. This is how the universe is run. And this, and no. So I started to investigate the religion that I was born into. And I was really, really expecting after investigation that there would be false notes there, that there would be a lack of truth there. And that, <laughs> that was around 25 years ago, and I've still not found any falsehood. You could just peel away the layers and ask the questions and argue and dig deeper, and you'll just get truth. You'll get more truth. Clearly, you're coming across as someone who's seeking and searching you're not finding it in all these places that you're looking. But you also mentioned that your early experiences with Judaism told you that also was not a place to be looking. How did you circle back around to saying, I'm going to give this one more try and see what I can find in Judaism? You know how they say there's, especially now more than ever, while Israel is at war, there's no atheist in a foxhole. So in my own case, I wasn't a soldier of any kind. However, when I was at MTV, it just it happened suddenly the freakiest thing and this is coming from someone who has flown around the world especially with my dad being a professor he was asked by many governments many countries to give talks or to be a visiting professor there so thanks to that i've flown all over the world with my family and then it happened that while at mtv i just developed this sudden onset of a fear of flying i cannot explain it but it was a problem because it was getting in the way of my career that I would not fly to my assignments anymore. New York City is basically an hour and 10 minute flight, maybe an hour flight to Toronto. And I would not take the flight from New York to Toronto to cover the film festival. I covered the Toronto Film Festival many years, but I would take a train, 10 hours, take a train. So that's a problem. And I even turned down a really great press conference in London because I would not fly from New York City to London to cover this amazing, like I'm talking A-list stars. So it was really getting in the way of my career. I would seek counsel from this or that kind of philosopher or therapist or whatever, and nothing was really getting to the core of why I had this sudden onset fear of flying, what to do about it, what is going on with my life. That's when I realized, like, oh, why don't I just talk to a rabbi? And why a rabbi? Because I remembered in my mind a conversation I had with my mother where she had said, I was around eight years old, she said, you know, rabbis counsel people. I have no idea what we were talking about at the time, but all I could think was, well, you mean Rabbi Hirsch? He counsels people. <laughs> and she said, yeah, 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 Rabbi Hirsch, a lot of rabbis, they counsel people. So it just sort of stuck with me. So I thought, okay, here I am in New York City, and I don't know a single rabbi. So I asked my very good friend, Rebecca, do you know any rabbis I can talk to about <laughs> a, a personal issue? So she gave me a list of rabbis and their phone numbers. I just called the first one on the list. What do I care? Scheduled a meeting. We spoke for an hour. And I'm just like crying because uh, this was really a problem for me. And he was really nice. He had a lot to say about Judaism, the soul. I thought, well, it's really, really nice of him to have these answers. And, and it's a 
kind of heavy. I'll think about it. But what I decided was this nice rabbi, he's given me an hour of his time. I might as well ask him a Jewish question to humor him because I've just talked about just my problems about fear of flying and everything else. And so I said, Rabbi Goldhar, both of my parents are Jewish. Eventually one day I'll probably get married and have kids. How do I pass on to my children a bit about their own Jewish heritage? And that's when he said, well, Heather, it happens to be you're in a center here of Jewish learning. There's a community center here. A lot of people are also very curious about their own Jewish heritage. And we have classes here. We have services here. I think you'll find the people very warm here if you ever want to come back and uh, study with us. But I'm not going to call you or nudge you if uh, you know, just come back on your own if you want. And I'm sure he thought at the time, he's never going to see me again. And <laughs> I thought so too. I was just, you know, what, I'm going to go to classes or a service? Forget it. But uh, I do remember that summer meeting. And then just a few months later came Rosh Hashanah. But I didn't, again, I'm the one who didn't realize it's Rosh Hashanah. What I realized is there was a particular couple of days of the week where I didn't have any celebrities to interview. And I was really an avid race walker in Central Park, Riverside Park, whatever. And I just thought, okay, no celebrities to interview. I guess I'll just lace up and go race walking around the loop. And then it occurred to me, Oh, I know what. There's no celebrities to interview because all of their publicists are in Temple. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, let's check the calendar. Yeah, it's Rosh Hashanah. Oh, my goodness. And now I know this rabbi. I don't know. What am I going to do? And I don't know what possessed me to actually put on a nice dress and go to this community center where he uh, had an office you can tell by talking to me, I am not shy, but I am introverted. <laughs> I don't like walking in on the middle of a party. I don't like parties. I don't like going into crowds. No. Um, so why would I just put on a, a nice outfit and go to this congregation? But I did. I don't, I have no idea why I walk. I guess I just told myself I can always leave if, if I'm uncomfortable there, I can just leave. So I walked in there And I pulled one of the prayer books off of this nice, beautiful wood shelf, opened it up, and lo and behold, here's all this Hebrew, and I could totally follow along with the service. I couldn't believe it. I had not read Hebrew in a couple of decades. But there I was, following along with the service. I even recognized some of the nigunim, those are the melodies that are part of any service. And almost a tear came to my eye because I was really just so moved that it was actually comfortable for me. And so I stayed there for the duration of Rosh Hashanah at this place. What was this place? All I remember is there was a sign outside that said A-I-S-H. And I thought, what is that? Aish. Aish. Like for weeks. (laughs) Aish. Right? So you're laughing. Why are you laughing? (laughs) I know the right way to pronounce it, but I probably wouldn't have at the beginning of my journey. <laughs> right. I totally didn't know what it was. So for people that know about Aish Torah, that was the Aish Community Center of the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And Aish means fire. So the Rosh Hashiva started this whole initiative as the fire of the Torah, Aish Torah. So after that, I did go back slowly, slowly, like a class here, you know, a crash course in Jewish history other classes about Jewish philosophy, the Torah portion of the week. Who knew that there was a Torah portion of the week? Because I didn't. But this was a standing room only class 
with the great Steve Eisenberg, I felt a very slow process, but eventually, yes, I would go back. I would just absorb these classes and I am waiting for the ball to drop the whole time, waiting for that falsehood, waiting for that, if it's a hoax at all, if anyone's corrupt, like, but this is an incredible staff at Isha Torah and just top tier teachers. By the way, I'm listening to your story and I'm thinking about how you said your friend Rebecca gives you a list of rabbis. You happen to call this one. You could you could have called anybody else in the list. It might have been a reformed rabbi, a conservative rabbi. You happen to just get this person who's affiliated with Aish and my how that changed the trajectory of your life. Right, right. You want to hear another change? So it turns out that just a few years later, that rabbi became my Masader Kedushin. He married my <laughs> husband and me under the chuppah. That's beautiful. And Steve Eisenberg was under the chuppah with us too. He was my witness. He was my aide. You're someone who's seeking. You're starting to go to more classes. But you also have this career in Hollywood that, from everything you've said so far, and we'll get a little bit more into it, is flourishing. How are these two worlds living in parallel as you're learning more about Judaism, but you're still fully enmeshed in this Hollywood life? At some point, I had stopped working for MTV. The opportunity to work for the E! Channel came up. So it meant suddenly I was interviewing celebrities that were also over the age of 30. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. And it wasn't just like rock stars and movie stars. With uh, E! Entertainment Television, I started interviewing a lot of models, a lot of comedians, Broadway, going to a lot of premieres. I was based in Manhattan, so I frequented their Manhattan office and I would get assignments from their base in Hollywood. So either E! News would call me and say, can you do this shoot at uh, some sort of premiere? Or whether it was E! News or any one of the other E! uh, shows, I would get the call from Los Angeles. And the nice thing about that job was I was just sent on assignment to go do these interviews in New York City, and it was so great, I just sent all the footage to L.A., and they edited it. I had the fun of the interviews. I And you didn't have to questions. fly. Yeah. Didn't have to fly. Well, by then, I was okay with flying. Yeah, yeah. That, I was okay with flying. You know why? I think I realized, you know, when you think about flying, you are way up in the air, It's in a very small environment, and the driver is somebody you can't see, can't see the pilot. The more I thought about it, the more I connected that to spirituality, that here we are in this little world, in a vast universe, but we're in this little world, planet Earth, and the supervisor, the pilot, is definitely someone we can't see. I had to come to terms with that. Just before we go into when your Jewish journey starts to accelerate, my listeners, I'm sure, would be disappointed if I didn't give you an opportunity to at least share one or two anecdotes from the A-listers and celebrities that you've met of something that really sticks out as one of the most interesting interviews that you did. I'm just like stunned by the access that I had. The people that were so used to seeing perform that here they are right in front of me. It is a little bit jolting. For example, when I, the first time I interviewed Brad Pitt, you know, you see his face on a screen 50 feet high. And then there he is like in front of you, flesh and blood. By the time I interviewed Brad Pitt, I had already interviewed hundreds of celebrities. So that didn't phase me. In fact, he was a super nice guy. And I remember making some funny comment. I thought it was funny. And so did he. He laughed at something <laughs> I said. So, you know, but uh, yeah, so he was, uh, that was a nice person. I think that uh, there's a lot of people that are fascinated, especially in the recent news with Johnny Depp. So him, I've interviewed several times. 
And he's one of my favorite people to have interviewed because he's so nice. And I didn't expect that the first time that I met him. I didn't expect him to be nice at all because, you know, of the kind of image that he had and the kind of roles he played. But very nice, very soft-spoken. Everything that you've seen in the trial, he's really is like that. And nice, self-effacing. But to interview Johnny Depp, the extra bonus is that he's so kind to the interviewer. And I remember at least on one occasion where he would answer a question, even if we're in a room full of people, whatever the situation was, and he would turn to me and just say, did I answer your question? Does that, does that make sense to you? And I thought, what celebrity does that? The celebrities really don't do that. Now, you also said that you would ask many of the celebrities what their life was like before and after becoming famous. So I'm just wondering some of the more interesting answers you got from how people viewed their life when all they wanted to do was become famous and now that they were and whether they were happier or not happier. So someone I interviewed several times was Drew Carey, a fellow Clevelander. And he did say he loved being famous. He loved it. <laughs> and, you know, he he also just seems like a happy, jolly guy. But he he was fine with it. Everything that came with it, he was totally fine with it. What was a little bit sad for me was when I interviewed Gary Oldman, the Oscar-winning actor, and I think one of the very finest actors of his generation. It was the third time that I interviewed him that I felt like I could really go just beyond only roles he played, because he had come out in the public saying that he battled depression. So not being an expert in mental health, I must admit, I, you know, I would just ask him, listen, you are considered one of the finest actors of your generation. How could you possibly get depressed? So again, that was a very ignorant question, but he just answered truthfully. He said, I don't know. I don't know how it could be. Like he, he was just wealthy, famous. It was enlightening for me to realize him among many people, the more and more that I would hear about this from celebrities that I realized fame really does not solve your issues. So I realized that I am definitely not envious of celebrities. And knowing what I know also about the whole entertainment system, the whole entertainment industry, whether it's Hollywood, New York, or anywhere around the world, it really is, I will just say unequivocally, it is a cesspool. I want to now circle back to where we left your Jewish journey, because when we last spoke of it, you were starting to go to classes. It seems like it was resonating with you a little bit that you were going to more. How does this accelerate to a point where you say, I'm actually going to make this a bigger part of my life? Oh, so the thing is when you're part of a community like Aish or many other close-knit communities, so come the Shabbos invitations and, and Yom Tov. And one of the things I appreciate about Aish is that never once did I feel pressured to do more. And I think they get that, that if they were to pressure the people who are coming to services or a class to do more or that they're just not comfortable with, then they would lose people. I never felt that kind of pressure. It was more like something I was drawn to. The challenging part of it was having just the whole Jewish philosophy. Like that was a challenging, very interesting kind of journey. And another reason I think for Asia Torah and other places' success is the unwritten or written policy of ask questions. These are teachers who themselves are scholars, Talmud scholars, and they are ready to be challenged. They encourage questions. And there's a lot of philosophies out there that don't encourage questions. They discourage it, you know, just to get on board. And 
I was among students there who would challenge the role of the Jewish woman and why do people date like this and why is this expected of the woman? But by the time I had gotten so much inspiration from what Judaism really is and getting to know more and more about what's really in the Torah and getting to know more about who the people are that are in the Bible. The more I was ready to learn more than what I could do in just New York City, even though I had a full schedule of celebrity interviews. And as enticing as that world is, I also, um, you know, got to a point where I was very fulfilled by going to classes and going to Shabbat meals, but I got to a point where I was ready to dig more into that. When the opportunity came to actually go to Israel and go on a trip, uh, Asia Torah sponsored a trip, which they called, well, I went on one of their touring trips where we toured Israel. So that was also eye-opening to go there not as part of a, my family, but to go there with an actual real religious community. And so we would go touring. But then a few months later, I don't know how I managed with all my deadlines and assignments, but I did manage to go on Ishitora's next trip, which was a learning trip, where we actually sat in one of Ishitora's study halls, not a base medrash, one of their classrooms, and we would learn all day. They would have different speakers. There was a class of learning Rashi with the Parsha. It's just very emboldening where I realized I am really where I need to be learning this. And I just got to a point where I wanted to come back to Israel as much as I could. And so in the year between 1999 and 2000, I had gone back and forth to Israel five times, five times. And again, it's really just a miracle that my editor kept my seat warm for me. I wasn't you know, let go from the job. My assistant was thrilled because he got to do all these celebrity interviews while I was away for 10 days here or there. So yeah, I think it is a good idea to go to classes, to go to an actual program where Jewish people can dig even more deeper into their Jewish roots and Jewish philosophy and Jewish wisdom and Jewish law. But the way you describe going back and forth five times, I would think at some point you say, I want to do like an extended trip here and really deep dive. And that would make it come to a head with your career. Like you can't just keep doing these short trips. Like where does it go from that point forward? Yeah, that was very intense because when you are learning actually in Israel, and I learned at a English language women's college called Neve Yerushalayim. And like many other students at Neve or any other students that learn in Israel, so many of us have this experience that you're in class and just you're overwhelmed by the feeling, I am exactly where I'm supposed to be. I'm here learning this material. I'm exactly where I am supposed to be. It's very hard to put into words, but when a Jew is actually in Israel, even during wartime, we're great. Thank God, we're great. I know there's a war going on. Um, I would not want to be anywhere else than exactly where I am in Israel. Thank God. But, you know, back then when I was a student of Judaism, and it wasn't wartime, but it was during an intifada, it was during an uprising, 
it's one of those things you can't really explain until you're here. When you're here in Israel and a Jewish person goes to any number of places where it's like, whoa, this is where the patriarchs dug wells, or this is where King David's tomb is, or where he did this or that. When our Torah comes to life for us in the land of Israel, it's fantastic. But also something about learning about authentic Judaism in Israel, anywhere in the world, it's great. Just it takes it up a notch when you're learning it actually in Israel. And there are so many philanthropists out there and subsidized programs that make this happen. So there are opportunities for a Jew who wants to learn more about authentic Judaism. If they want to learn in Israel, there is no shortage of opportunities to do that. And people will subsidize your trip and your learning and uh, other things. <laughs> So you've mentioned Israel a few times, and from what I know about your background, it wasn't just about studying there. This culminates in you actually moving there. So how did you get to that point? Yeah, how did I get to that point? Because, you know, it wasn't as though I had nothing going on in the States. I was at a point where I had already been an interviewer of celebrities for over a decade. And we're talking now at least a thousand interviews of people from all the different areas of the entertainment business. But also, you know, I interviewed a lot of producers and directors. So there are a lot of types of people that work in the entertainment business and literally over a thousand interviews. And, you know, when you get to that point where you're doing almost anything well for 10 years, you become the expert. <laughs> so I was also like a pundit where sometimes I would get a call from NBC News. Can you come down to we're, we're doing um, a documentary about Fabio or about Drew Carey? So like they would bring me to do an interview there. Uh, Fox News would call and they would say, we'd like you to come to the studio to talk about, you know, last night was the Oscars. So we'd like your feedback on that. Or if a scandal broke out or, you know, any number of things. So my career in the entertainment business was actually on a trajectory forward. So I was definitely at a crossroads because I was just so infused with a love of Judaism, a love of Shabbat, a love of the holidays, and just to keep learning more. And also because I was immersed in learning in Israel, in this terrific program, I was also learning more about what's expected of a Jewish woman because I wanted to have an authentically Jewish kosher marriage and raise a family and all that. So I wanted to know. It was a very fraught time because I also had this amazing career to go back to. So I would consult with my rabbi, I would consult with um, Rebetzin Heller Gottlieb, who is to this day still my Rebetzin. So it was, uh, yeah, it was a really, really interesting time. And so then I was given very good advice by my rabbi. And he said, listen, you're clearly growing a lot in your Jewish observance. Give it another month. And if you feel like you are not progressing forward, maybe you should go back. Maybe you should go back to the States, continue your brilliant career. And see what happens. And um, yeah, well, I knew where that was heading, but I took his advice. <laughs> and for sure, sure enough, a, a month later, it was just like another month of, wow, you know, amazing, amazing insights and growth and friendships. And what had happened also in the interim is I would be matched up with this or that person to date for the purposes of marriage. So that's Shaduchim. And so what really 
clinched it was I was matched up with uh, a fine gentleman. You know, I, I had been matched up with other people in Shiduchim, and there was this and that challenge or clash or whatever. And I would just say, please tell him to stop calling me. <laughs> but then I met this great guy, and it was just really, really green lights. I don't know how to phrase it, but you know, you know how sometimes in the dating process there's these hitches or glitches or whatever, but no, I would look forward to every date and so did he. And he would call me uh, in the evening, you know, to say goodnight. And it was just, it was nice. It was an authentically kosher Jewish dating process. And I mean, authentically kosher. <laughs> and we're both Ashkenaz, he and I. So we wanted to announce our engagement, but we couldn't until we took our Tay-Sachs test to see if we could go forward with it. So when that came through, just fine and no problems. So yeah, so that's when it's sort of like he was already here. He had already made Aliyah to Israel. So that was it. That was it. I called my editor at the network. And I remember being in Kikar Zion, which is Zion Square in downtown Jerusalem on a payphone. And I said, Michael, congratulations to me. I just got engaged. And you know what he said? <laughs> he said, oh, Heather, I'm so happy for you. You're getting out of this business. And I thought, oh, I'm getting out of the business. But you know, what are you going to do? We, ha we had a wedding to plan and he was right. It was, it was time for me to step back from that because I was entering a fantastic new phase of being married, setting up a Jewish home and thankfully having a family together. And so Andy is already in Israel. You make the decision that you're going to stay. Do you find a way to take the skills that you had from your entertainment career in New York City and map it against something that could make sense to do from Israel? Yes. So back then when we got married, so this is kind of around the time, oddly enough, that the internet was starting to explode, but not just yet. This is where traditional media was still the king of all media. So there were plenty of media outlets in Israel, and especially in Jerusalem, that, that took meetings with me to perhaps be the entertainment editor or whatever it was. The thing is that my Hebrew really wasn't good enough to also, for, for them, like to, the, the editor-in-chief of the Jerusalem Post wanted me to, to work for, in the entertainment division, but I would have needed much better Hebrew. So for a while, it actually just didn't go as much as I wanted a career in media in Israel. And my husband suggested, listen, you've interviewed so many celebrities and they're all so different. Maybe you can translate that to Shaduchim. Maybe you should be a matchmaker because there's so many different kinds of Jews. And in fact, it'll be a tikkun, which loosely translated means a correction. Maybe it'll be like a nice way of thanking God, just sort of like out of gratitude, help other Jewish singles get married. So you know what? He was right. And for several years, I was a matchmaker. I used those interviewing skills and singles loved being interviewed by me because I knew how to ask the deep questions mm -hmm. instead of just the big three, you know, like, uh, what's your hashkafa? What's your nationality? You know, there's like so much more to ask when you're interviewing um, singles. And uh, then Hashem blessed us with uh, our children and to do, I think, matchmaking full time, you really need a lot of time. It's a lot of time on the phone, a lot of time doing interviews, a lot of time making matches, following through on these matches. It's a lot of time. But eventually, when our kids started being born, one right after the other, and they were just teeny, they really needed their mom. So I put matchmaking on a shelf. 
and um, since then raised my kids. Um, they're still kind of being raised because they're teenagers now. <laughs> uh, but, you know, a teenager, you're kind of self-sufficient. So that's when I was brought back into the media. And the great Tamar Yona, who is a legend in the English-speaking media here in Israel. So she was the one who said, I think you do a radio show on our platform, which is a Israel news talk radio. So that got the whole ball rolling back is that here I was um, writing my memoir about this extraordinary career as a celebrity interviewer and why I left it. And that dovetailed with working with Israel news talk radio and doing a weekly show for them which I don't do that anymore. I do other things, but that was my way back into media and uh, media production and hosting. Now you just used the word memoir, but we didn't get a chance to hear the name of the book because our listeners, I'm sure, are hearing all these stories and saying, we could talk to you for five hours and hear about all of your thousands <laughs> of experiences, but they can get yeah. many of them in your book. So can you just share yes. the name so people can yes, find it? Yes, yes, yes. Oh, that's so nice. Okay, so the name of the book is Searching for Heather Dean. The subtitle is My Extraordinary Career as a Celebrity Interviewer and Why I Left It. And Searching for Heather Dean is also the name of a song. Back in my days in New York City, I was friendly with uh, many musicians, and one of them actually wrote a song called Searching for Heather Dean. So my publicist at the time thought that would be a great title for your book. Let's call it that. So there you are. <laughs> Clearly, you're somebody who went super far in the entertainment industry, but also went really far in your love and journey in Judaism. What do you think about those two worlds today, given where you are in your life? The worldwide entertainment business, I thank God that I'm no longer remotely involved in it my old life. It was fantastic. It was great, but I'm not interested in the entertainment business just because I've seen so many examples of what it's done to people who are in it, who are entertainers. But I do love performing artists. So I work in Jewish media now. So I'm able to use all of those experiences and all of the skills I picked up in the media. I'm able to use that for the good and bring that to the Jewish media. So I produce and host my own weekly podcast and I do a lot of writing and I also do a lot of consulting for people who are interested in promoting their product service or written work through media interviews. I think that that opens up a world of possibilities. It's nice to be able to use the skills that I came with and now bring it to the Jewish media world. Since we're fellow podcasters and you just referenced your own podcast, but you didn't say the name of it. So we have to give you a chance before we close the interview so you can okay. name it and people can find it. It's called 613 Books. There are 613 mitzvahs in the Torah. So it just made sense to reference Judaism, that this is a Jewish podcast. We interview authors who put out books, a variety of different books, a variety of different authors, but it's for book buyers who enjoy books with authentic Jewish values. So that's 613 books. Thank you for sharing that. And I just want to say, as we're wrapping the interview, that something I really love about everything that you shared I think about all the shears I go to when the rabbis are saying things like, don't get caught up in the trappings of what's in this world, fame, fortune, celebrity, like that's not what your life is supposed to be about. And it's really so interesting to hear how far you went in that world, met so many people who are going really far in that world, and still managed to see that there was a bigger picture and something else for you. And you found your way to that over time and where you're living today in Israel. It's just, it's really a magical story. And I'm just so happy you're willing to share it with our listeners. So Heather... Thank you so much for joining me today on Saturday to Shabbos. 
It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Jeff. Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit tachlismedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard, or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at tachlismedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.